You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men. If you're thinking of screaming, don't do it. Because we got the old lady and the kid in the bedroom. Presenting Patrick McGowan in his most harrowing role since The Prisoner. No! A prisoner again. My name is Lucas Miller, and I intend to hold a public retrial of a man who was wrongly convicted. No! A radio personality held to ransom. And this place is soundproof. I want that federal squad, and I want them here now. I want them on the way right now. A trial by ordeal live on the airwaves. Hello? Hello? His program used in a desperate attempt to release a political prisoner. <laughs> God damn it, Henry. Where would we be if every time some punk grabs a hostage, we cave in? The uh, shotgun is pointed at my belly and my wife and child in a room adjacent to 20 pounds of jelly knives. Would you be kind enough, sir, to clear the air? Guilty. Guilty. Satisfied. Satisfied. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Daniel Kremer. Remember, this is your program. Also with us is Mr. Jonathan Marlowe. Indeed, I'm here. On this special episode of The Projection Booth, we are looking at the 1981 Canadian thriller Kings and Desperate Men, produced by, directed by, and starring Alexis Canner. The movie is the story of an arrogant talk show host, played by Patrick McGowan. He and his family are taken hostage by a handful of gun-wielding terrorists. The main terrorist, played by Canner, goes on air with McGowan's character, and they engage in a tense battle of words. We're going to be getting into spoilers big time on this film which is slightly difficult to find except on VHS and through various questionable means such as YouTube. So if you haven't seen Kings and Desperate Men and don't want anything spoiled, turn off the episode and come on back. Or maybe this might be a little bit more preparation for when you actually see this very unusual film. In that case, stick around. Now, Daniel, you've been telling me about this movie for years now. When was the first time you saw it and what did you think? I saw this film in 2002 or thereabouts. My family and I used to go to a flea market in Pittsburgh called Eastland, which was in a part of Pittsburgh called North for Sales, uh, which looks like actually North for Sigh, but everyone around there calls it for sales. I mean, I used to get only VHS there once upon a time. I was like, I would just for hours, I just uh, scour through all the tables. And week after week, I would see this cover kind of staring me in, in the face and i was intrigued by it but for a while i held off buying it because i wasn't sure if it was like uh, i mean with the with the pg-13 rating on the front it kind of looked like one of those bad direct-to-video thrillers of the time and i was like uh you know if it were, if it were then and then I, I i was curious so i began reading about it uh, online and, and what very l- limited form back then i mean there was nothing on on the internet at, in that era about this film 
and then I was like, oh, I should really grab this. And, uh, and then I was reading that, uh, uh it was shot in, uh, December 1977, I believe. Right. Yeah, 77. And then it was, and then it had this very scattered release. I mean, there was one at the, at the, at the Montreal World Fest in 81. It was in, at the London Film Fest in 84. Uh, so I was like, wow, this, and then I watched it and, uh, uh, I never saw anything like it. And then I began to, to introduce it to other people who were willing to give it a, a go and give this kind of, uh, very, odd uh title uh, ago and uh, i i wound up actually showing it at my university screening series uh, when i was at temple university film school and uh, um i've been very um absolutely fascinated by this film for years and years and uh yeah how about you jonathan well it's very strange and very similar to daniel's situation i ran a little movie theater upstairs at a place in seattle called scarecrow video and this would have been before i had probably seen my first episode of the prisoner People say don't judge a video by its cover. I mean, to paraphrase, but uh, there's something about the graphic design of this particular uh, oddity that caught my attention. And I had I was familiar with an earlier film that Alexis Kanner starred in called Twin Sanity, or at least it's called Twin Sanity on video. And being someone who is somewhat fond of Patrick McGowan at that point, I thought, well, I should give this a chance. Daniel mentioned that, you know, it originally had been filmed in Montreal in the late 70s, but it did take him a number of years to finally complete the edit of the film. And, you know, in many cases when that happens, it would be evidence that uh, either the money ran out or uh, the inclination to complete the project uh, wasn't quite there. But you can see in the way it's constructed, particularly in the in the way that the audio is mixed, that it's it's fairly revolutionary. I mean, in essence, it could really be a stage play, uh, which I suppose is why on the box it references uh, talk radio. It feels a bit stagey, but it creates this atmosphere of Christmas time in Canada that is really fairly unique and never quite strays from levels of implausibility, although it's never entirely believable either and i think the closest connection to mcgowan's uh, uh, prisoner series is less the the handful of episodes which alexis stars in like living in harmony or the girl who was death or fallout the last episode uh, but it really bears a lot of similarities to the kind of face-off that is usually considered the penultimate episodes of the series which I think is really interesting because it allows McGowan this opportunity to really chew the scenery in the way that he's particularly uh, good at. It was interesting because Scarecrow Video had a copy of it. I rented it. I enjoyed it. I tried to find people who had ever seen it. No one had seen it. Nobody cared about it. It was this very sad <laughs> uh, little film that really never quite had the reputation that it deserved. So much like Daniel... Whenever the opportunity presents itself, when someone asks me, well, uh, what, did you recommend a movie that I've never heard of before? This would usually be one of the ones that would come up. I had a hard time finding people of like minds out there. There were a lot of negative reviews of this film that I could find online. I could see their point, and I can see your guys' point. I kind of am in the middle with this. I appreciate a lot of what it's trying to do. I appreciate... The layering of the audio, especially, I rewatched this one again yesterday with headphones on, and I think that's kind of the way to go, because the way that they put this film together, it's almost too much with just the non-stop 
audio. Like it is a barrage of sound coming at you and almost all of it is pertinent information. It's not like it's just, you know, little throwaway lines or whatever. You're you're understanding this almost like a radio play come movie. Unlike most films where you're either seeing it from the perspective of the protagonist or the in this case you would think that the terrorists would be the you know the enemy where we only are kind of getting insight into what they're doing as the film unfolds in this case alexis canner is doing something really clever which is you're kind of with both sides simultaneously you're understanding what both teams are trying to accomplish without forsaking or dominating the narrative from one side or the other. And it's very unusual at this time to do that, with primarily with the audio mix. You don't see a lot of that on the screen. Yeah, yeah. then then you have those, uh, just kind of the um, kind of the hoi polloi out there, that, that's kind of the, you know, the listening audience. Right. Uh, and these kind of uh, like little, like, it's a ton of, of, of throwaway moments uh, that, that there are what would otherwise be called throwaway moments, but really adding to the kind of the, the tableau and the kind of what, what's going on uh, uh, outside of, of this show of the of the space where that where this kind of mono a mono pas de deux, if you want to call it that this kind of dance between these two guys or showdown or, or whatever. And uh, you have the you have the entire Montreal metropolitan area kind of tuning in. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, cutting to them, you know, in the midst of that and like, you know, the, either, you know, the boy delivering papers in the, in the early hours, or you have the woman who it's intimated that she's, she's had some kind of dalliance with the Maguin, uh, and has mm-hmm. all the pictures. And then you have the, 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 um, uh, older, all the older people in the, uh, kind of, uh, getting kind of caught up in the drama of, of everything. Really, I mean, really pertinent, uh, now, I think, in, 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 in terms of how we, how we digest media. I think uh, the way that the way that the film looks at that is ahead of its time. And for a while, I thought I was crazy because I loved this film so much, and I kept on reading all these horrible mm-hmm. notices that were available. I mean, Malton gives it I think one and a half stars, and you know, it's one of the few guides that that even had a mention of it. Uh, and, uh, and then, like on the video box, you have uh, a quote by uh, Kevin Thomas of the LA Times: "Tour de force worthy of Oscar consideration." In several categories i was like you know what i'm you know i know i'm right i know i'm right there are other people out there who will get this uh and who will who will understand it and uh when i screened it as part of i, I used to run a, a, a series at, at at temple um university called called film fridays uh so i i used to program there and uh one of the first films i i screened was was kings the lights came up and essentially everyone was flabbergasted and uh just very much a, a concerned sense of what the hell did i just watch mm-hmm. uh and uh, uh and then like all of a sudden it began to break down into like conversation about the about the little moments and particularly there were two people in the audience who who kind of fixated on a shot of a of a, of a movie camera a very very brief shot of, of a movie camera on on the hood of a, of a police car uh and then and then that kind of spurred a whole whole conversation just about that shot and then it just kind of continued along that route it's like well what about that quick moment or, mm-hmm. or, or that shot and it's like i never had a uh, um discussion session about a movie like this one because it was just you know people people that you had, you had these kind of uh interstitial things that 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 really that really resonated for people in a way that that i i haven't seen for any other film before or since 
Well, there's this strange thing that's also happening in the film where it seems to be an intersection of many things at once. The squad that's basically there to take on the terrorists are all non-professional actors, and a lot of that is shot as if it were a documentary, uh, which fits very strangely with the stuff that happens in what is supposed to be the radio studio that McGowan uses for his program, which is really just an elaborate loft with pictures of him all over the place from different parts of his career. I've heard it said and, and I've read in, in other places that the part, while it wasn't exactly written for Patrick McGowan, really it's hard to imagine anyone else in that role. Once he was cast in the part, it was clearly tailored around his personality and his inclinations to spout poetry and quotes from plays and yeah. other uh, errata. But the one thing that I thought was also very curious that uh, it makes an effort to draw a connection to the the earlier period when, when McGowan and Canner worked together on, on a television show was this effort to, in the final episode of The Prisoner, everything kind of hinges around this Beatles song, All You Need Is Love. And in, in this film, they introduce, for really no apparent reason, with a little help from my friends, which I suppose is a nod to Canner as professor and these people who are fairly incompetent terrorists uh, <laughs> in just about every way trying to pull this elaborate job that doesn't seem to be particularly well thought out as to what they really want once they get what they're after in the kidnappings. But I, would, I did want to point out not just the bizarre audio mix that we were talking about earlier, but just the really untraditional use of music throughout. Obviously, it's set at the day before, or initially it starts the day before Christmas Eve, and then there isn't really Christmas music in it per se, but there's this medieval yeah. theme that keeps yeah. recurring that seems like it doesn't belong, but I actually love it. <laughs> I, I love really it love too. It. Yeah. I love that theme. <laughs> uh, my, my, uh, I actually shared uh, this movie uh, later with my, with my longtime cinematographer and uh, he, he wound up lifting the, that music out of the movie <laughs> and putting it into his iTunes because he loved it so much. It's worthy of mentioning that one of the audio designers on the film was Bo Harwood. Oh, who yeah. worked on a lot of uh, Cassavetes' movies. It's really in the layering of sound that the picture is revealed more and more. The, I mean, but between that kind of weird, uh, is, it, is it like a theremin when the kid is with the papers? It's oh, like yeah. with the uh, Come Rescue Married Gentleman and everything. Right. Everything between the music and, and the, the kind of the climactic scream, <laughs> uh, which is, right. uh, which I mean, I think, I mean, that really... Uh, knocked me out when I was, uh, I mean, I, I was, I guess, 17, 18 when I saw this. So that, that really, really threw me for uh, a, a loop uh, as, a, as a, a guy wanting to make films and be like, wow. The film really reminds me of, and this, you might take this the wrong way, but it reminds me of uh, Orson Welles' uh, adaptation of Othello mm -hmm. in the way that it, Alexis Canner is really using the uh, footage and the material as a starting point and then reconstructs it and re changes dialogue here and there, right. post-syncs different things. He provides the voice for a number of yeah. different characters, and so sometimes it's not clear. It, it doesn't yeah. make sense that it's him, but you can kind right. of recognize that it's yeah. him. And yeah, it's it's a masterpiece of, of jam syncing. Which, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> on the Orson Welles uh, note, and, and 
uh, ties into uh, the appearance in this movie of, of, of Andrei Markovici, who later um, was paired with with Henry Jaglom, who did a, a great deal of, of, of improv cinema. And uh, Henry and Henry talks about how he was editing "Can't You Bake a Cherry Pie," and Orson was watching him kind of jam other other characters' words and into, 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 into you know, other people's mouths, right? Uh, and be like, you know, this is what you're doing is is kind of weirdly <laughs> weirdly wrong and kind of cockeyed but but it could very well help to revolutionize the way that people look at making uh improv based cinema because you're basically writing later uh, and and there's jams thinking all over the place in this movie I, I wind up doing that all the time because i work with fairly improvised films that i make so it's uh i admire the, the workmanship as well as anything right right <laughs> the handiwork this was shot in 77 and then wasn't released in – what was it? It was released in Canada in 81, U.S. in 83, and U.K. in 84. And the world world was a little different place by then. It was you know it wasn't that many years, but things had changed. The mid-'70s were really – and I, I, I'm going to get in a lot of shit for this – but it was the golden age of terrorism. The raid on Entebbe happened in 76. The Symbionese Liberation Army is happening, happening between 73 and 75. You know, the, the uh, Operation Load. Like, there were so many different terrorist things that are happening in the mid-70s that this kind of fit in neatly with that, with this whole idea of you know what was happening at the time. And then also that this was shot in Montreal, though that I don't think they make that specifically clear, but just the idea of terrorism in Montreal, I mean, people, especially in the States, don't realize just how heated the whole idea of the liberation of uh, Quebec and the whole like wanting to split Quebec from the rest of Canada, how hot of a topic that was. So, you know, I can see this kind of playing with those themes in here. And then I'm curious if maybe by 84, that wasn't necessarily on the front of people's minds as much. And definitely in 2018, if you watch something like this, you're not necessarily remembering just what a hot topic some of that stuff was. Now you're used to terrorists, you know, taking over boats, planes, all these kind of things. But you're more used to guys coming into places and just shooting up stuff. And then you have to wait 24 hours to even begin to glean why they did it. As a Canada file, uh, as you know, someone who spent <laughs> four years uh, writing a book on a, on one of one of Canada's earliest directors, the idea of of separatism of Quebec very much was on the on the public consciousness at the time. I mean, you had you had uh, Jean-Vier Bougeot and and Claude Dutra actually refusing the Order of Canada because they they wanted to see Quebec as its own country that the idea of radicalism and uh, of, a, of a more erudite manner than we know uh, t- you know terrorists to be nowadays uh, I think in, in many regards we have this idea I think nowadays uh, of a 21st century terrorist uh, not being given a mouthpiece right uh, in a way that uh, that that uh, a character like this is given I mean even even in uh, Die Hard, which, which I'm sure we're going to talk about later, because Cano wound up suing the makers of Die Hard, you, you didn't get the you know the, the sense of, of any kind of uh, intellectual machination or, or principle. It was just uh, it, it, it was already beginning to redefine itself. The the idea of uh, urban terrorism or, or whatnot at the time. Yeah, and I think that also when you look at the casting, it's very bold of Canner to have 
cast uh, Margaret Trudeau in the role. And I think that sense of Canadian history, which I would certainly recommend uh, anyone who's interested in seeing this film to also see it in the context of Robert Lepage's No, which deals a lot with what was happening in the climate uh, at that time between very progressive separatists and uh, the public at large, that uh, Trudeau was, you know, very interesting representative of uh, the powers that be, yeah. uh, but, and her defection from, from that. And I, I certainly hope as a person that lived near the Canadian border and was very aware of this when it was happening, that considering the current prime minister, who Margaret is his mother, uh, that people would revisit this film, even in that context, to get a better understanding of where this is coming from. This film is often paired with The Silent Partner. Uh, oh, yes, and, right. uh, yeah, So another kind of Canadian thriller at the time with with, with Elliot Gould. That film is kind of uh, has a louded, a much more louded status, at least, than King's. Whenever I mention this film in Mixed Company, whomever happens to know it, it's not many, but those who happen to know it uh, will mention it paired off with The Silent Partner. Another film that had a, a similarly scattered release, which has an early Tommy Lee Jones, uh, also shot in Montreal, Eliza's Horoscope. Do you know this film, John? I haven't seen that one. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a very odd film shot. Uh, uh, the, the guy only made one film. Kind of the Canadian inferiority complex. And hmm. uh, that uh, a lot of these films, uh, unless, unless it's kind of hit a chord with the larger Canadian uh, viewing public, uh, you'd have very, very scattered... Uh, you, I mean, you had, you had a film, in the, in the case of Eliza's Horoscope, you had a film shot in, in 70 released uh limited at 75 and then when 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 Tommy Lee Jones began to break out you had a, a reemergence of it in the early 80s hmm. so uh you know very very similar release histories very very troubled uh, right. uh histories as well uh and uh, it's interesting also i have this clipping here from variety dated uh september 2nd 1981 they're so talking about the press conference at the Montreal World Fest for Kings and mm-hmm. uh canner was not happy with the with the with the initial notices coming out of of that festival for this film, uh, so he he ordered another press conference to kind of uh, maybe clear things up a little bit. Um, hmm. And I guess and it's I'll, I'll I'll read a part of it. Earlier in the week, the film had been given its world premiere. It was the only Canadian film in in the festival's official prize competition. David Novak, director of public relations for the festival, said Canner has asked for a second press conference because he doesn't feel his film has been treated fairly by the Canadian press. He asked the festival for permission to do so and we and we granted his request canner said it was the quote vitriolic nature on the early reviews that prompted him to call for the conference quote i am not here to whine or to complain i'm just asking for a review that reads as though it were written after seeing the film and not before <laughs> because that because I, I i think there was a lot of uh kind of uh cheekiness about trudeau's Right. Um, presence in the film, uh, and a lot of like kind of, um, joking, uh, about, uh, oh, uh, it's like, it was, it was almost like, I guess for us, uh, Otto Preminger hiring Mayor Lindsay, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the ex New York mayor for a role in Rosebud. And he, as I think everyone who's seen that movie would concur, he's bloody awful in that film. Or, um, uh, Francis Ford Coppola has, has done that on several occasions, given bit parts to, certain friends that maybe not even friends maybe, right. maybe relatives <laughs> right, right. <laughs> that, yeah. uh, i'm wink, not going to get in specific wink, but, wink. Yeah. but uh 
you know, this, this, this stuff happens. And I think in that context, uh, Trudeau is actually quite good in the film. I mean, she's not really given a lot to do, but she's, I mean, I, I don't understand the, you know, the vitriol directed at her. I've also seen it referenced that, that this was her first film, but I also have, uh, noted elsewhere that she was in an earlier film. So if the criticism was that she was some kind of acting neophyte, I don't get that impression at all. Anyone next to Canner and, and McGowan are, are not going to look particularly favorable in that light. So. <laughs> I think Andrea was being uh, reticent in, uh, in 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 your conversation with her, but when I interviewed her back in '09 about this film, she was a lot more frank about her her issues, uh, shall we say, with uh, with Canner uh, and McGowan, particularly, particularly McGowan. <laughs> really? um, she, uh, I guess, at the end because they would drink constantly on set. Really, it's not evident. <laughs> <laughs> He'd make little nasty retorts to a lot of the people around. So at the end, yeah. at the end of the shoot, she asked Kanner, it's like, okay, so I'm done. And she goes, yeah. And she goes, I'm really done. It's like, yes, you are. And she took a glass of whiskey and basically dumped it on McGowan's head. Oh, wow. And McGowan said, why? Why, Miss Malkovici? Why? <laughs> and, uh, I don't know. I'm not sure what she answered. I'm not, I'm not sure if, if she recalled, but, uh, she didn't like McGowan terribly much. The crew, the, the people involved in the making of the film nicknamed the film Kings and a Desperate Crew. Uh, <laughs> because, I mean, there were, the, the, as, as, as uh, Andrea put it back in 09 to me, the continuity person, where was she? Like right. She was totally, she was totally, uh, couldn't keep track of anything because it was all on, on this whim and no one, it didn't feel like we were getting coverage. It was like a miracle to Andre, I think, that, that it even was, was completed at all in any form. Right. Uh, so this kind of madhouse, uh, atmosphere, uh, in which it was made, I think, uh, really lends itself to this kind of fever dream aspect of the film where it's just really kind of like, you know, where are we? We have these kind right. of disembodied voices and kind of, uh, shots from the floor of the, of a car. Right. And we have hands on a, on a steering wheel. Who are these people? It's we're very talking. Personian at that yeah, point. yeah. And we're just, we're, we're, we're like mentioning characters that we don't know who they are yet, but like we're, we're kind of supposed to understand because maybe you might call it, you know, and maybe it's rest or something, but you know, and it's given context very, very gradually. But uh, um, right. it's just a very strange way to to set up a film. I'm sure it was entirely antithetical to the way that people were accustomed to uh, receiving stories. To I'm, I'm I, I think I'm channeling Spielberg talking about Kubrick in that, in that <laughs> off off used interview on those on those discs. But yeah, we're, it's, I think a lot of what this movie is is it is very it's extremely antithetical to the way that we're to the way that most audiences are accustomed to to receiving movie well, stories it does ask the audience to collaborate with what they're seeing and piece the story together right. and if canner and mcgoon are the dueling protagonists in two totally separate stories that intersect that narrative is a drunken haze which the mm -hmm. structure of the film tries to recreate even when they aren't on the screen there are moments uh, with the, uh, in the other hostage situation that make no real linear sense because the shot and reverse aren't clearly happening in the same place or at the same mm -hmm. time, but they're crammed together to make the, the story move forward in a, in a concise way. Despite its chaos, there's really no wasted moment in the way that the story is constructed. It's very 
compact. And that's why I find, and I know we're about to get to this, the the suit against Die Hard outside of the time period and the terrorism angle to be a bit suspect. But I can understand Kanner clearly spent many years and much energy to make this kind of rough masterpiece mm-hmm. to then have someone make a big budgeted version and kind of turn the whole story on its side uh, and make it an action movie must have been very frustrating yeah. for him. Yeah. It paid off a little at the time because the film did have a number of uh, uh, high-profile admirers, including Arthur Knight, a prominent film scholar, author, film critic, uh, Ronald Neem, who's mentioned Mm. in this article, Mm -hmm. who who, uh, apparently saw the film three times uh, and uh, was just grew to be... um, And, uh, yeah, it it says here, but in truth, they had just met... This is a piece in... uh, L.A. Weekly, uh, 1983, uh, I guess one of its many uh, releases. Uh, Neem had been so impressed by Kanner's film that he'd called his friend Arthur Knight at USC and arranged a screening there. Despite his contacts and expertise, however, Neem could do little in the way of getting Alexis Kanner's film distributed. Um, and you, know, you had you had FX Feeney, who uh, you know the major uh, critical proponent at the, at the at the London Film Festival. Um, his blurb is on one of the posters. It did have its defenders amid uh, a sea of of detractors who really didn't know what to do uh, with uh, uh, you know either expressing uh, how how they just couldn't make head or tail of of, of much of anything. Kind of going back uh, to the to the whole. Trudeau thing for a second. Uh, Kanner stated at his first press conference that he had cast Trudeau in the part not for publicity. I thought then, and I think now that she is perfect for the part. And then you had other disgruntled members of the cast other than Andre. You had Frank Moore, (laughs) who plays one of the uh, uh, terrorists, uh, who says, uh, um, I don't expect the movie to enhance the careers of anyone who is in it especially me. It's the worst work I've ever done. That's box office, 1978. You, you had a handful of admirers. Right. With, with, the with, smart with ones, Kings. like yeah. us, and, and the detractors, which um, were the majority. Which, which are the grand majority. Well, because the people wanted it to be a nice, polished film, considering right. that the, the people who are in it, they you know they watched the movie thinking it was going to be this straightforward story, and it's nothing like a straightforward story. It makes no attempt to be a straightforward story, and it makes it very clear from the opening shot you know where you see everyone kind of preparing for the holiday season uh which almost like it, these days it would be do, done with a drone but now right, it's, yeah. it's this yeah. overhead shot that kind of tracks in almost like the beginning of the conversation but then you have all of this overlapping dialogue mm-hmm. happening from the very beginning where for the first i don't know five or ten minutes of the film you have no idea where the audience fits in relation to what they're seeing. It could be an experimental film for all that it matters before it settles in to this weird thing between Patrick McGowan really taunting this judge (laughs) on his radio program. And then we keep intersecting with the audience as they're listening to this radio program. You're like, this is completely unconventional. No one was making films like this at the time. So in a way I felt like Kanner was going, well, you know, uh, when Seconds came out, when Faces came out, people didn't understand that either. I'm going to try and take this, they're not at all similar, right, but right. to try and take the story structure in a new direction that w- was warranted by the plot. Like, the story really welcomes this approach. 
Apparently, I'm, I'm reading here that uh, UA United Artists had originally offered to uh, finance it, and then I guess Kenner had a, had a falling out with them. And then once the film was done, <laughs> surprise, surprise, and then once the film was done, uh, a Warner's exec told him, uh, and quote, if we take it, we'll kill it. But I, I can't imagine this film thriving within a studio distribution system. It would, it would have been dumped like last week's trash, I think. Right, I guess in a way we're thankful that it didn't go that route yeah. because then we probably wouldn't be sitting here talking about it because they would have shelved it somewhere and we wouldn't have come out through Magnum. Or yeah, Magnum. <laughs> or, or or they would have mutilated it, which would have been very sad. Or, yeah, or made or made, tried to make it linear, which I don't know if it was possible. But you know, I, I guarantee <laughs> that if the studios bought it, that one of the studios would have tried to try to straighten the the plot and and soften the rough <laughs> edges. Like the weirdest scene in the movie for me happens pretty early on with McGowan, who appears to be probably uh, in a scene that he would, pr- would not remember even making. I mean, it doesn't appear he's acting drunk. He right. appears literally drunk. <laughs> I'm and sure he's he was. with Margaret Trudeau. Yeah. All the dialogue is changed because mm-hmm. she says she leans in. We can't see her, and she says, yeah. "You're drunk." You're drunk. You're so basically, yeah. this yeah, to, right. to kind of set the tone of what we're seeing, <laughs> I guess, like because the audience looking at this is going, "Oh my God, what the hell." And so she says what everyone's thinking, and then he says, you're rich, which right. makes the sense of what their pairing is all about. Well, they don't seem to live in a particularly nice place. Like it's they, like a, a large apartment and yeah. like a, and like a condo or so like not, a co-op or something. They can't really be that rich. And yeah. He seemingly must do fairly well as a right. radio host. Right. He seems right. to have a lot of autonomy. Right. Like we never see the infrastructure that allows this radio <laughs> right. show to exist. We kind of know of the character, uh, Mr. Aldini, but, you know, <laughs> yes. but right. it, it, it doesn't seem like he has any uh, reins on his. No, on no, his, no. Yeah, yeah, on his well, host. I mean, who would allow this? Like, because this terrorist situation is occurring. It's like, okay, you, you have control of the airways. Right. Do what you wish. Right. But then he breaks in and says, okay, this spoiler, I guess, I have to do this radio, you know, this ad, ad, right. advertisement spot because that's what pays the bills. Yeah. And it's like, wow, okay, well, there's a commerce aspect that's introduced right. to this. But really, like, he has free reins of the airways. They're right. letting him run, run the show 24-7 now because of this this incident. Right. And now he's going to put this this ad on. It's right. just like okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, so it's I mean, really it's a taunting thing. So right? yeah, it, yeah, exactly. He knows how to play his his guests in a way that is very delicious and tantalizing, and you know you, you can't help but be pissed off uh, at at his treatment of them yourself. But you can't right. help but just laugh at at. Uh, I guess I guess the perfect word for what he has is uh, it's a word. One of my favorite words that's been. Adopted into the English lexicon from Italian, sprezzatura, which is uh, uh, <laughs> studied nonchalance. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, um, a lot of the critics of the of the time and now uh, always cite that oh he's McGowan hams it up and hell yeah he does you know it's mm-hmm. like shit yeah of course he does but I mean he's playing uh, an actor. You know, he comes from the character right. is supposed to come from this acting thespian background where he's, uh, you know, it's in in, in vogue uh, in habit for him to be big. And that, mm-hmm. and part of the show that he puts on, I mean, look, kind of look at what we're going through now in the U.S. with the we have a showman right. in a very important office. And, you know, it, it's, you know, I'm not I don't like to equate uh, um, Magoon with uh, with so and so. But, mm-hmm. uh, um, you know, uh, I, won't, I won't say his name, but uh, but you can't help but uh, look at look at how he uses kind of the showmanship aspect in order to lure in people into his spectacle. The ending wouldn't make any sense if he wasn't 
so bombastic and manipulative. Right. The whole setup for that, and then the way that it is resolved, right. can make sense otherwise. It right. Would, it would fall apart. And the way it's actually filmed is right. unbelievable. Yeah. Because it's it's misdirection. Yeah, but it's also a, a huge uh, summing up. Like everything that we've seen, all these little kind of pockets of visual information here and there all of a sudden just explodes in that mm. sense in a very literal way. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, uh, and then, you know, it, it kind of re- returns to him. It's like, Mr. Miller has lost his head all over the walls of my studio. Tune in tomorrow. Our topic <laughs> is government spending. And, uh, you know, it's very wry and a, lot, a hell of a lot of uh, sprezzatura and uh, just a, a fascinating character. It's a, you, you have a hard time imagining a character like that in in real life but uh i think we're seeing a bit of that now it's like you, you can basically get away with anything any attitude any you know any of that studied nonchalance uh is is gonna augment the you now the number of people that are that are that are listening and calling in and part of the john kingsley cult if you will were you guys fan of the prisoner i arrived at the prisoner a little later than i probably should have considering my inclinations but uh, once I watched Arrival, uh, I was all in. I mean, there really wasn't much to dislike in what he was attempting to subversively do as a follow-up to Danger Man or Secret Agent, depending on which way or where you saw it. I mean, I like the earlier show. I like uh, his performance as a debonair spy in, in, in that series, and yeah. this seemed like a very kind of clever way to invert his fan base and mm-hmm. do something that was much deeper and, and much more profound, in much the same way that people who came from Night of the Living Dead to Dawn of the Dead, there's all the subtext that's happening in the second film that, well, there's a lot of subtext yeah. in the first film as well, but there's a whole other layer that's happening in that film. And I think of Dawn of the Dead in the context of Kings and Desperate Men, in in the context of the use of nonsensical canned music and commercial applications mm-hmm. of sound, the kind of consumer society being criticized in the in the context of a narrative that's really theoretically about something quite different. So the prisoner definitely bears a relationship. I mean, without the prisoner, Kings and Desperate Men would not exist. Canner would have never been able to make that movie would have never been able to put the financing together for it. Certainly would not have cast Patrick McGowan in a thinly veiled uh, number six reference. I mean, what about you, Daniel? I mean, what was your exposure to The Prisoner? Well, I, I had known Patrick McGowan. first film I ever saw him in was actually Ice Station Zebra. Oh, yeah, right. Um, Which he made and, while uh, The Prisoner is being... Right, precisely, made. yeah. And uh, um, I was I was trying in vain throughout my high school years to track down the only film that Patrick McGowan directed. Oh, yes. Catch My Soul, which uh, was totally off the radar. Even on like, no one on Gray Market knew what happened to it. Uh, so, and and thank God, you know, uh, the people at at Etiquette uh, right. put it out on Blu-ray recently. So, um, Magoon was very much in my orbit. Uh, I didn't wind up seeing The Prisoner until first year of college and uh, uh yeah of course uh, i mean it's a, it's an incredible i promised i wasn't going to say this word because it's so overused <laughs> and annoying but out of the box uh, yeah yeah and uh just you know it's kind of uh, um anomalous television it's like there's nothing that quite fits with it it's just you know, really out there 
in a way that's uh, uh, in a way that was not really becoming to to the you know television and and, and BBC back in the day. I mean, the closest you had to it was Anthony Lully, uh had a had a one season show called the the World of Gurney Slade or the Strange World of, of Gurney Slade, which is a really uh, um, out there show, uh, <laughs> kind of loosely comic and it's kind of surrealist and everything so uh, uh you had kind of predecessors to it but uh but yeah i mean you know the prisoner is totally uh anomalous uh, and and that's that's the main reason i think to love it is that it was it was definitely uh it's it's beloved by uh um by its it's cult for a good reason i've been a mcguin fan for a long time my favorite of course he was a villain in at least two Columbos, if not three, and then he directed. No, sorry, he was a, a villain in four Columbos, and I think he directed two. And so I know that he and Peter Falk obviously got along. So that was always nice to see their interaction. And especially he would kind of play the same character that he was playing in this as far as like haughty and full of himself. And that was ultimately his undoing, especially when it was the uh, by dawn's early light where he was this colonel who was so full of himself. And that was ultimately what uh, how Columbo managed to undo him. But um yeah, as far as The Prisoner, I didn't come to that until I started watching Lost, and people kept making comparisons of Lost and The Prisoner. And then when the Lost finale happened that I'm still pissed off about today, it was kind of prophetic because <laughs> people talked about right. how when The Prisoner finale happened that – it was like you know people had to go into hiding afterwards because they were out for blood, even though I always kind of knew how the prisoner was going to end when I was watching it because of the beginning when he would always right. say, who is number one? And they'd say, you are number six. And I'd always think, well, they're telling him he is. Yeah. It's just like, what do you want? Information. Well, that's <laughs> actually information. They want you to... Fall into yeah, your place. Fall into place, yeah. Mm-hmm. So the whole, yeah, the whole introduction of the show sets up the whole series, and I, that's why I laughed. I mean, I guess because we're coming at it long after it initially aired, where folks were expecting it to be wrapped up in this nice little bundle, like, oh, now I understand. It's this something equivalent to James Bond, like this Doctor No <laughs> character that people is didn't be binge watch back then. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they didn't. I, I mean, it's just. To me, it's funny because I think that the ending is absolutely perfect in its own way because it just takes the whole thing and goes completely off the rails. But uh, And then it really sets up the possibility that the whole thing is cyclical and it's all going to repeat. People like to complain about everything, don't they? But uh, as for the end of Lost, everybody recognizes that was a lost opportunity. No pun intended. I think this movie has one of the best elevator pitches in movie history. I mean, whenever I've, I've talked about, you know, people will ask, like, like the, the, the people I work with, I, I work in a film lab, and I was, I was telling them, oh, yeah, I'm doing a podcast, and like, what's it about? Uh, what, what's the movie about? And I said, oh, yeah, it's about a talk show, a radio talk show host, and he's held hostage in his uh, studio, and they, they have a retrial on the air of a guy who was convicted, uh, or they feel was wrongfully convicted, with the listening audience as jury. And and you normally the reaction is like, wow, that's a great concept. So like it's kind of interesting that that like people will take that concept and be really excited to to watch the movie, and they'd be like, that wasn't all what I expected. <laughs> yeah. uh, but normally I've gotten that reaction a lot. It's like, wow, that sounds great. And then like they watch the movie, and, and it's like, yeah, that was not what I was expecting. No, no, no. Where did that come from? Yeah. 
Well, it's, it's a shame that this didn't lead to something else. I mean, when you look yep. at Silence of the Sea, uh, the first Jean-Pierre Melville <clears> film, <throat> which is essentially three characters stuck in a room, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a really clever, low-budget concept. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it could go completely wrong, but it goes completely right. Mm-hmm. And this is essentially doing the same thing. Like, hey, we have three people in a room, and they're going to work out their issues, and you're going to watch that. And it's not, it shouldn't cost a lot of money to pull off. Of course, then there's also other extraneous stuff. Yeah. There's a, you know, there's a whole subplot of the, you know, law enforcement trying to right. incompetently solve this issue. Uh, lots of raids and things happening to kind of fill out the kind of areas yeah. around the edge, but it's none of it's particularly expensive. Like I don't know precisely what they spent to make this, although despite the multiple years of, of him editing it. Uh, both the sound mix and, and yeah. just cutting the film together, but, but it, w- it wouldn't be an expensive movie. In the right hand, someone should have looked at this and said, man, this guy really knows what he's doing. Let's give him some money. But I wish, yeah, I wish there was a follow-up to either McGowan's directorial debut or now Canner's, uh, maybe not debut, but yeah, it seems to be the, his primary output was this, this lone film. You were saying earlier how difficult it is for Canadian films to get distribution unless they kind of tap a nerve or the yeah, yeah. Uh, notoriety outside of it. But I think of um, going down the road, down the road which, road, yeah. which did get, really, yeah. and then big, it just kind of yeah. disappeared. Sadly. Way, yeah. So Canadian films, sadly get very little distribution outside of Canada, let alone in it outside of mechanisms set in place to get Canadian films distributed. And there's, you know, if you try to think of, uh, directors um, from Canada. There's only a handful, sadly, that generally come to mind, and yet there's so many great ones. Canadian cinema is uh, is a uh, a most unusual passion for me. It's kind of like a, I, I did a full a four part piece on the, on the history of of Canadian cinema, and it's just really I don't know somehow in my DNA. My 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 mother must have been eating a lot of poutine <laughs> when she was when I was when I was in the womb. Uh, but, Knowing uh, your mother, I, it just doesn't strike me as, like, <laughs> but maybe. Maybe, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, she doesn't seem to be a poutine connoisseur, but we should ask her. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure if you put Heinz ketchup on it, she should go for it. <laughs> he really went through the ringer trying to get this movie uh, out there. And uh, when it finally arrived in, in, on VHS in 89, um, it was just, you know, on the, on the, on the, on the tape that we have here, um, it was just like, you know, it's a great box. I mean, correct I'm me if sure. I'm wrong though. The, the, so the version that someone's uploaded to YouTube, uh-huh. uh, is just a transfer of the VHS tape, yeah. which is basically matted to, uh, VHS proportions generally. It's not, yeah. so there should be a, a print out there yeah, that's, think. that's in a, you know, there's a bit of the frame that we're missing out of all of this. It is. It, it does say that it's yeah, a six, six, yeah. Yeah, one six six. So it's not. It's not. It's not. It's, I mean, it's, it's not. Yeah, radically trimmed. Thank God it's not scope, but you know. That would have been interesting. Yeah, it would have been, but you know, I think I think you know being deprived. I mean, I I, I went through that with a lot of movies over the years, where like the only thing available was the pan and scan of, right. of whatever. You know, where a lot of a lot of Sidney Fury movies, I was. I tortured myself for years. Most of all, Mike, with the, with Sheila Levine is dead and living in New York. There was that awful pan and scan, which was nearly unwatchable. Correct, then, yeah. like you know, you realize how much you're losing. So, like the fact that the fact that you know, we're, uh, there's some comfort in knowing that we're not losing too much from Kings, 
But oh, uh, even still, yeah, one six yeah, three, one six six is still. But I mean, you want to see it on a yeah. print, though. You know, you want to see it. And I've on, looked. On I have looked. You have looked. Yeah. I have just it, uh, there are no prints that seem to surface. So, I mean, we owe it to Magnum for getting this tape out as yeah. far and wide as they did because it does seem to turn up a lot on VHS. Not that people necessarily still have VHS decks that work, but yeah. some people do. Uh, but do. it's overdue for uh, someone to put it out on disc, ideally. Yeah, to properly put it up streaming would be nice. I guess I had it either on false information or they postponed it. But when I interviewed Mark Avicii back in 2009, when I interviewed Andrea, uh, there I saw a rumor that Blue Underground at that time oh. would have been putting out, but that obviously never happened. So oh, I don't I've know. talked to them a bit. They never mentioned it to me. Really? Yeah. But well, it, not like, that they would necessarily just bring it up. Talked to them back then. Yeah. Back at the time. Yeah, back yeah. at the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, that would be wonderful. If yeah, that would be amazing. But you know. All right, gentlemen, we are going to take a break and play a pair of interviews. The first is with actress Andrea Markovici, and the second is with second assistant director Arden Rishpan, and we'll be back with both of those right after these brief messages. After Movie Diner promo, take one. John Wayne here from the Brannigan Podcast. Has anyone seen the full Vernon? No, try again. Sweaty Vernon here from the... No, come on. Hey, how's it going? I'm Matt Ringler from the Schlock Treatment Podcast. Hoping you'll tune in to After Movie Diner. It's my favorite podcast. Better, but also at the same time completely useless. Um, Try and mention the movie reviews, the interviews with independent film directors, things like that. Matt Ringler from the Schlock Treatment Podcast here. Hoping you'll turn in for a... It's tune in. Christ. <laughs> Matt Ringler from the Schlock Treatment Podcast. Hoping you'll turn in. <laughs> saying turn in. How hard is it just to plug the damn show? Do it right or I'm going to come down there and nail your face to the fridge. Listen up, folks. Matt Ringler here from Schlock Treatment. I want to tell you about a great podcast, The After Movie Diner. There's plenty of pie and everything's delicious, especially the host, the sweaty Vernon. No, 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 no. I mean, he didn't even mention that the podcast is available every Monday at amdpodcast.blogspot.com and iTunes. Idiot. It's not easy having a good time, and it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superman episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Ba-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. 
All right, I'm here with Bill Byforce and Mr. Chris to tell you a little bit about Outside the Cinema. All right, Reverend Scott, take uh, us to church. Uh, what can we expect to find from a typical show? Two hours of just random blabber. <laughs> uh, is there anyone's coattails you wrote in on to popularity? I'm the guy that f***ing burns the coattails and then pisses on them. You review all these exploitation, <laughs> horror, comedy, cult, and often all-around terrible movies. You must have a strong driving force that keeps you going. Ego. <laughs> I don't know if I've heard you say that before. Uh, yeah, I've been saying that for a while. Really? I have been saying that for a while. Also, I'm high on smack. Well, it's definitely working for you guys. <laughs> People are coming out in droves to support you on iTunes. We just the other day got a, a, a one-star review on iTunes. Well, that is one That is one star too many. <laughs> Let me tell you. The worst f***ing piece of shit I've ever heard. This has been great, guys. Thanks, Scott. Ah. That was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. Uh, I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. All right, welcome to the interview section of the show. First up, we have actress Andrea Markovici. How did you end up getting your start in show business? When did you decide to become a singer and an actress? I had my sights set on show business when I was about five years old. <laughs> so there was never another option for me. My mother was a singer. My father was an accomplished pianist and dancer, although he was a doctor. And I had always wanted to be a, a singer and an actress. And I had a lucky brain. I was barely out of my teens. I was at a party, and Arlene Francis, who then was rather famous, offered me a chance to be on the Merv Griffin show, and I took it. And that meant that I didn't finish college. I just finished one year of college, and I started my career such as it was at the time, it was basically commercials, but the commercials led to a chance to be on a soap opera, Love is a Many Splendored Thing, and the soap opera led to nighttime television uh, movies of the week, that led to episodic television, many, 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 many episodes of episodic television, and that led to the movie The Front with Woody Allen and other movies. And eventually, the singing came along with the films. I mean, when I had the release date for the front, I played at Reno Sweeney, which was a club downtown on 13th Street. And I opened at Reno Sweeney at the same time, because I always tried to balance the two careers as best I could, because I had always intended to be both. My eye was on a kind of... Well, whose wasn't? Barbara Streisand kind of career. <laughs> I mean, she was really the, the the gal I looked up to the most. And so I did Broadway and I did Off-Broadway and I um, maintained both careers. And then in the um, late 80s, the cabaret life overcame the acting life and... Uh, for the last 30 years, I've been more of a singer than an actress. Did you study acting? Yes, at Bennett College and at HB Studios when I was a teenager. But I'm not one of those that can uh, admirably claim that she continued to take classes. I didn't because I was always a working actress and 
there didn't seem to be the time or I was lucky enough to have such great, great, great direction in the jobs that I was doing that I felt I was learning on the job. Well, speaking of direction, I'm curious, how was it working with Martin Ritt? He was wonderful to me. He was like a great big teddy bear, considering that most people thought Woody Allen directed that movie, (laughs) which he did not. Martin was the, the leader of that picture, and he had a very strong hand, and he was very good to me. It was my first feature, and I was led beautifully and directed kindly and sweetly and given lots of wonderful advice, mostly by Zero, Mustel, who um, took me under his wing and made sure that I had all the right camera angles, and <laughs> he was very wonderful. He was always saying, catch the light, catch the light. <laughs> he was really wonderful. I am a big fan of all of the airport movies. <laughs> oh, you are a, a masochist, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, a little bit, a little bit. But they're such fascinating films, and just the, the, the weird mashup of all these different actors and acting styles that they I have. I know, right? Right. They are of their time, aren't they? Tell me another movie where you get Sylvia Cristel and Charo in the same film, you know? There's no such thing. There's no such thing. It's like an episode of Love Boat on steroids. It's just, I mean, it's just madness. What was your experience like working on that? Like most um, experiences for me, because I just had a ball in the 70s and 80s in this in this crazy world of show business. I had a fabulous time. I had a fabulous time. John Davidson was a hoot. He couldn't have been nicer or kinder or funnier. And I was playing this Russian gymnast, and I got to sing in Russian in a hot tub. I mean, (laughs) and of course, that was in an airport movie, so that makes a hell of a lot of sense. And I sat next to Mercedes McCambridge, who is, of course, a legend, and I have great regrets that I didn't ask her more questions because I was young and foolish and not respectful. And that comes with being too young and too silly and not doing my research and not realizing I was sitting next to a legend. And we do these things when we're young and foolish, but I did have a lot of fun. The only thing I really didn't like... um and I really didn't like it, is in the disaster part of the movie of of Airport 79. Um, we were all in the cabin, and in order to create the chaos of, of, of um, the moment before the crash, uh, we were all seated in, the, in our seats, and they blew all of this uh, paper and dust and little bits of garbage and all sorts of stuff right in our direction in order to create the look of a plane going down. And in retrospect, I think about how dangerous, but naturally, there are so many times that they don't think about the actor and what they're actually putting an actor through, and they're turning you upside down, and they're putting, you know, essentially dangerous for your eyes, all this crap (laughs) right in your face. It was very scary. It was truly scary. So that we didn't have to worry about acting in that sequence. There was no concern of, my God, I'm going to have to dredge up something I'm afraid of. I was scared to death. Speaking of young and foolish, um, you worked on Oliver Stone's, I think, second feature film. How was that working with him as a director? Well, he has a reputation for being a wild man, but he was very kind to me. 
So I have nothing but the things to say about Oliver Stone. Um, I was, it was a, a real whirlwind of casting. I, I met with him in New York and I had an audition. I was flown out to the Beverly Hills Hotel. And my goodness, Mike, I was given a suite at the Beverly Hills Hotel that was big enough for me and a couple of football players to practice. It was massive, massive. And I had a couple more auditions and got the part on the spot then. It was one of the most thrilling experiences in the world. And this was first class all the way, you know, first class air travel, limousines to meet me, the whole nine yards. So I couldn't have been more excited. And meeting Michael Caine, I, oh, you know, just, just an absolute thrill. And again, there's a man who's a charmer, a, a storyteller extraordinaire, um, a man I learned a great deal from by just being in his presence. But Oliver was, um, by and large, very well disciplined and um, ran the ship very well. Occasional temper tantrum, but nothing like I heard later in his career. So I felt I felt very, very uh, coddled and safe. Yeah, nothing being blown into your face on that one? No, just <laughs> the difficulty of having to pretend you can't get a fake hand off your neck when indeed you could take it off in 10 seconds flat. So you're pretending to pull it off your neck at the same time that you're actually holding it onto your neck, which is a complex bit of business. It's like trying to pat your head and rub your tummy at the same time. Well, that was nice. You moved up from being one of the players like you were in, in the Concord into, you know, I think you're pretty high build, if not second build in that film. You live the life of an actress and you go where the agent says, oh, this is your audition day and you audition and then you hope for the best and then these miracles happen. And then you throw your hat in the air like Mary Tyler Moore. Now, I know Kings and Desperate Men didn't come out until 81, but I had read that that actually shot in like 77. Is that correct? Or like 69 or something. <laughs> that long, <laughs> no. huh? Wow. No, no, no. You're absolutely right with your dates. You're totally right with your dates. But we shot it so long before it came out that I forgot about it. I mean, I just literally forgot about it because I thought it would never see the light of day. It was so zany, so cuckoo, so wild that I just didn't think that they were ever going to be able to edit it together because the whole thing was improvised. And there was so little coverage. I mean, you understand that without coverage, how are you going to cut it? And I was coming from episodic TV where everything is done by the book, master shot, two shots, over the shoulders, close-ups. Everything is done by rote, you know? And here I was on a set where everything was freewheeling, and there was no coverage, and it was improvised. So, my goodness gracious, I didn't understand how they were going to put it together. Um, The director was zany, to say the least, and I will leave it at that. Alex and Patrick, equally zany, and they were best friends, and they were living a life of their own, separate from the movie. I mean, whatever it was that they had as a vision, they were not sharing with the rest of the crew. <laughs> so it was it was a difficult shoot, but I get to I got to spend time with Margaret Trudeau, which was a delight. Well, yeah, I was so surprised to see her in the film. She was delightful in every way. We went out shopping. We went to lunch. We 
We had so much fun. We stayed in a gorgeous hotel, which had an outdoor pool in the middle of the winter. What more do you want? Well, if memory serves, you were the only two women in the cast. Right, exactly. And I was some sort of terrorist, kind, constantly scowling. That's why I have a frown to hide with some bangs as it, as it is today. <laughs> I scowled through my career. <laughs> it feels like it was a real passion project by Alex. It was Cannon. for Alex and Patrick. It was a passion project, absolutely. And I think they had some sort of script, but it was mostly in their heads, and it really wasn't very much on the page. And they kept getting irritated with the crew, so if the sound, if the sound said, um, we're, we're, um, we're not getting that shot. We can't get it. They said, just forget it. <laughs> so, I mean, what could you possibly do? So it was very interesting, extremely interesting. When you are acting and you're, you're, you know, going from these films to TV, uh, to EV movies to TV series, are you also doing your singing at the same time? Are you are you doing different gigs as well? Some, as of, doing? The, some of the time. I mean, um, in uh, 75, 76, 77, 78, I was still singing at Reno Sweeney. I, I also did Nefertiti, which was a Broadway-bound show that closed in Chicago. Um, but when I moved to California in 78, the singing took a back seat until 1985. So I definitely took a, a a breather from singing. I didn't try to balance the two careers very well. 85, I started balancing the careers better. And then by 90, my singing took over completely. Whenever I talk to anybody who is on this TV show, I always have to ask them about it because it was such a groundbreaking series. What was your experience like on Hill Street Blues? Well, that was a real, a real surprise because it was so groundbreaking. And at the time, I had such a strong reputation in film, I mean, in television series work, that Stephen Bochco brought me to the studio and showed me the pilot personally. He screened the pilot for me in order to get me to agree to the next four episodes, which was, I look back on it now and I think, my God, what an honor. What an unbelievable honor. Nowadays, the world has changed to such an extent that getting an audition is people are scrambling to get a meeting. And this was a meeting of such a proportion. I mean, it's unbelievable to remember such a thing. And I, of course, said yes immediately. And I played for four weeks this reporter, and I had a fabulous time because the cast was so congenial, all in it together. This was one of the first of the truly ensemble shows, and I had been used to the star shows like Magnum P.I. and um, Kojak and Beretta and Mannix Medical Center, all those. And I enjoyed meeting everybody, and I enjoyed being around everybody, and Stephen Bochco was such a genius. Wonderful actors, wonderful ensemble work, and then the thing that was revolutionary is wonderful camera work. If you look back on it, we take it for granted now that everybody's handheld camera work and that they're always walking, that they're always moving, that they're always doing something else. They're always walking down a hallway. They're always, they're always on the move. 
Whereas, as I said before, the standard way to do episodic television before was just the master shot, the two shot, the over the shoulder, and the close-ups. It was all pretty static, but not on Hill Street Blues. I think they broke down those barriers. People still talk about the way that the camera moved on like NYPD Blue, and that seemed like kind of a knockoff of, uh, of Hill Street. Yeah. Yeah. Well, wasn't that his show, too? I think he just grew from where he started. A few months ago, I had the luck of talking to Larry Cohen. And I was curious, (laughs) what was your experience like on the stuff? Well, pretty silly. (laughs) There was a lot of laughter. There was a lot of laughter. There were so many different kinds of stuff. They had to invent a million different kinds of stuff. There was yogurt. There was whipped cream. There was fish guts which was my least favorite of the stuff, some kind of something like color form stuff. I mean, it, it was just the strangest thing. What a funny movie that was. Um, I loved Larry Cohen. He was a very funny man with a very funny imagination. I got to work in an upside-down room, just like in that Fred Astaire movie, Royal Wedding. And I thought, oh, my God, here I am in a great old Hollywood scene of the room turning over, but I'm being chased by a by a yogurt instead. <laughs> <laughs> it's not quite as glamorous as I thought. <laughs> the yogurt is after me. No, no, no. This is, you know, it's, it's basically the attack of the killer tomatoes. Oh, I've done some wacky pictures. Well, speaking of, can you tell me what you remember from working on Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone? First of all, we had to do it twice. Um, At least the first half of the movie we had to do twice because they uh, fired the director after the first three or four weeks of shooting, and then we had to shoot everything that we had done. And we did it over again which was uh, not pleasant when you're in Moab, Utah. Now, Moab, Utah is one block long. That's it, one block. In the heat of the desert, there is one hotel, there is one restaurant, and then there's one sort of fancy kind of bed and breakfast for some bizarre reason. But that's because it's near Arches um, uh, National Park, which is a gorgeous, gorgeous place and worth visiting, of course. We had to be in the desert again and do it all over again. And, of course, I remember many things about this. Most importantly, Molly Ringwald, who was just a darling child at the time. Not so darling all the time because she was a teenager and she had her moods. But we still know each other to this day. And it was 3D, so it's a painstaking process with two cameras facing you at every shop. And they have to be aligned for every shot. It's very tiring. And the other thing is they had to make a mask of my face, which is very frightening. Very frightening. Oof. Something tells me that was probably your only 3D movie. I would hope so with the size of my nose. Oh, my God. I went to see the movie, and when I turned forward, my nose was out over the first four rows of the audience. So you talked about in 1990 kind of going back to just being the, the singer. What happened was, and I'll explain, I started to sing at the Algonquin in 87, and it was um, usually a 10-week run every fall. And then I started getting these wonderful performing arts centers throughout the course of the rest of the 
year, and pretty soon I was booked so heavily that when the acting auditions came up, I couldn't take them. I just wasn't available. And that's why the acting kind of took a back seat. didn't mean that I didn't do the occasional theater piece, which I did. I did, during that course of that time, I did St. Joan, I did Burn This, I did Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, I did productions of On a Clear Day You Can See Forever and Coco, and I had fabulous times doing some wonderful theater. I did Finian's Rainbow out here. But mostly, when you audition for anything in television, they want you available on Monday. <laughs> you know, hello, it's Friday. They want you Monday. And I've got to go to Ohio and sing in a, in a performing arts center. So I really had a problem. But um, now that things are a little quieter in my singing, I'm refocusing on acting because I'm a different age. And I can get, you should excuse the expression, grandmother roles. Yay! Well, you are no slouch when it comes to your singing career, because I think you've done like 16 albums since 1990? Between 16 and 20, and I'm on other people's albums, so it really is something like 20. I'm curious, when it comes to something like, say, Always Irving Berlin, what is the decision-making process when it comes to which songs you're going to do and actually putting together an album like that? Well, it takes about a year. I do a lot of research, and I create the show first, and then I do the album based on the show. I don't go out to make the album first. I'm not thinking about what's the perfect Irving Berlin album. I'm actually doing my research, creating the cabaret show, and then I'm making a souvenir for the cabaret show. And that is all my albums have been created except for an album called New Words, in which I collected contemporary songwriters of the time, and I put together a, a, a repertoire of contemporary songwriters, and that was not meant to be a show. I guess along those lines, are there songwriters today working that you really enjoy and that you would want to sing? There are quite a lot of them, actually. There's Pasek and Paul. Um, I have from, you know, The Greatest Showman and from La La Land. I have one of their songs in my latest show, which is going to be done at 54 Below on November 17th. I have, um, I've always loved Craig Cornelia and John Bucchino, and I appreciate, um, some of the new Broadway, Evan Hansen, that's Pasek and Paul again. And um, <clears throat> there's a girl named Babby Green that I love, and she's got a song in my new show. So, yes, I think there's some great contemporary writing. Now, I know your career is not over by any stretch of the imagination, so I just kind of limited to what you've done so far. What are some of your favorite roles that you've been? I think Coco is one of my favorite roles that I've ever done. The Catherine Hepburn musical with um, Alan J. Lerner and um, Andre Preden. I, I had the best fun playing Coco now. I thought that was, you know, incredible. St. Joan is another one that uh, I, I ate the stage. I swallowed the scenery in, in, in doing that. And, of course, the front remains my uh, 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 shining moment. I, I, I just think it's something that I can rest my laurels on in terms of film. I loved it. Well, that's got to feel pretty good when you knock it out of the park, one of your first roles out there. Well, when you get one of the best roles ever as your first role, you just knock wood and play it, and then 
and I can always look back on it with great pride. Not to mention the fact that you're part of a political statement, which is important. I was also in a play at the Mark Paper Forum called Ghetto, which was about the ghetto of Vilna. And that was another political statement that I was proud of. Well, tell me more about your new show that you have coming up. Well, it's called Crossing the Time, and it's very much about the different stages in a woman's life as she goes through life and as she kind of faces transitions in life. And it starts with One Life to Live, and it ends with a brand new song written for me by Leslie Alexander and Shelley Markham, who is my musical director. And it has songs from all the years of my singing from, you know, 1985 all the way to now. And I I love it. I, I just love it. I'll be doing it in June in California, June 22nd and 23rd at the Gardenia, which is my homeroom. And I've taken it already to Chicago, where we got some lovely notices. Is there a place out online where people can kind of keep up with you, your gigs, buy your albums, those kind of things? Yes, um, markovici.com. Well, Ms. Markovici, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a real pleasure. Oh, it's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you. Up next is second assistant director, also kind of the casting director, and so much more, Arden Rishpan. How did you get involved in Kings and Desperate Men? Alexis Canner was a family friend. He and my father knew each other from the time they were kids, actually. My dad was his counselor at camp. Both of my parents are in the industry. My father was an actor and a theater director. My mother worked for the union for many years. And he and Alexis had stayed friendly their entire lives. And when Alexis came back to Montreal in the fall of 1977 and said he was going to make this film. My dad said, you need to meet my daughter. She's in film school. Alexis needed an assistant to start with, and that's how I became involved at the, with the film. I was home for the summer from film school, university, and I had just turned 19. And was it kind of a given that you were going to follow in their footsteps? Yes, I think I, I knew from a fairly early age that it's what I wanted to do. I walked on my first film set at the age of five. And by the time I was 14, I was a member of the union. So I I knew pretty early on that somewhere in the business was where I was going to find my career for sure. So they hired you as his assistant, but I think that your role turned into more than just that. It did indeed. Alexis didn't know very many people in Montreal. He'd been out of the country for many years, and he needed introductions to both the actors and the technicians and production personnel in town, and I was able to uh, introduce him certainly to a, a knew most of the actors in town. So I wound up doing the casting on the film, and I was also the second AD which was interesting considering that I'd never been a second AD in my life and learned the job literally on the job, courtesy of some of the extremely kind and very experienced technicians who were working on that film with us. So I inherited these positions on the film because there was nobody else to do it in a sense. And and I guess Alexis put a certain amount of trust in me to be able to fulfill these obligations. 
which looking back on it now at the age of 19, I think is completely preposterous. But <laughs> nonetheless, it was a really good early experience, I have to say. Well, yeah, it sounds like a lot of pressure was on your shoulders. It was a challenging project for a variety of reasons. The film came together quite quickly uh, in terms of its financing and its pre-production. The financing um, just literally days before we started teetered on the edge of collapse. This was in the early days of the Canadian film industry as we understand it now. And there were uh, tax shelters in place for film financing. And the rules changed suddenly a few days before we started to shoot, which threw some of the financing into into some sort of disarray. And I know that uh, that caused an awful lot of stress on everybody involved and almost delayed the start of shooting at the time. You talked about the casting, and I'm curious. I imagine that Patrick McGowan was always a given for that role that he played. Was that the case? Yes, Patrick... Of course, Alexis and Patrick knew each other for many years as a result of The Prisoner, and he came with the project. Everybody else was cast uh, during the pre-production period, including Margaret Trudeau and Andrea Marcovici. How did you get Margaret Trudeau? It was actually my dad who said, you know, what you need is a Margaret Trudeau type. And Alexis turned to me and he said, great, go get her. And I said, no, 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 Alexis, he said a Margaret Trudeau type. He said, I know what he said, go get her. And so I eventually found her agent. Margaret had recently separated from the Prime Minister of Canada, Pierre Trudeau. And I have uh, spoke with her agent and made the arrangements for Margaret to come and do the film. She had effectively no experience as a performer before, but she was interested in looking at that to see whether or not it would be a viable career for her. So it was, uh, that added another dimension of complexity and stress to the shooting of that film. She was still technically married to the prime minister of the country. So there was an awful lot of press and well, we didn't call them paparazzi at the time, but there were paparazzi hanging around outside where we were shooting. There was our CMP security, as you can imagine. Uh, I have to say that Patrick was not very kind to Margaret during that production at all. I, I don't think, Pat, I mean, Patrick certainly didn't care that she was a prime minister's wife. All that really mattered to Patrick was, can you do your job well or not? And he was, as I said, he was quite hard on her and, and was not kind to her during during the production at all. Well, it doesn't sound like he got along with too many people too well, because I talked with Andrea Marcovici, and she was saying that, he was a little bit of a terror. Oh, he was. And Andrea Marcovici is one of the loveliest human beings on the planet, I have to say. She was, um, I said, one of the nicest human beings I've ever worked with and a real trooper under very difficult circumstances. Patrick could indeed be quite a tyrant. Alexis certainly had a very strong personality. And the two of them were plagued by a certain number of demons which didn't help, I don't think, during the production. Um, the fact that we were also, you know, locked into this tiny location, the vast majority of the film takes place in what is supposed to be a radio studio and was actually a two-floor penthouse suite. 
at what the time was the Four Seasons Hotel in downtown Montreal. So we took over effectively two floors of the hotel. So we had wardrobe and makeup and craft service and everything in various hotel rooms on the floor of the hotel. And of course, all the, you know, Patrick and Alexis and Andrea and Margaret all stayed in the hotel. So I think after a little while, people started to get a bit of claustrophobia in that environment as well. It was, it was, it was a pretty challenging Pretty challenging show. Now, there was a Q&A with uh, Alexis about the shooting of the film, and it sounded like the script supervisor was let go fairly early on. How many people dropped from that production as they were going along? Gosh, you know, I, I don't remember. There were people who certainly fled. There were people who were let go. There were people who stayed I think there were probably a couple of them at a certain point who suffered from Stockholm syndrome. Um, as I said, it was it was a pretty challenging production. The um, director of photography, who was an immensely talented man, was also um, had a big personality and could be quite challenging to work with. And so you put all of that into the mix along with Margaret Trudeau, who was. Not anxious, but she was she was a bit nervous. This was a big role for her, and she hadn't done anything like it before. And she very, very, very much wanted to do well. And so I think her um, her desire, her her obvious desire to do well and to please, probably didn't actually sit very well with Mr. McGowan in some respects. Was it the DP who wanted to throw McGowan out of a window? Oh, he wanted to throw Alexis out of the window. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, that was uh, that was the one time on the set when things actually descended pretty low and and got a bit physical. The cinematographer lunged at Alexis. I, I don't remember what the cause of that was at this point. That wasn't the only time that voices were raised or things got very tense while we were shooting. I think that was probably the worst of it. Well, even you as a 19-year-old, you said that you'd been on your first film at five. And I'm curious, did you know, like, this is not normal, just, you know, even as you're a young person? Oh, yes, yes, yes. (laughs) I'd had a continuing role in a soap opera for about three years in my teens. So I'd spent a certain amount of time on a very comfortable set where everybody worked very collaboratively. Um, my father had started working in films. He was uh, very involved with uh, Jan Kadar's film, Lies My Father Told Me. And I spent a certain amount of time as a teenager hanging around on that film set watching how things got made. So by the time we actually got to making Kings and Desperate Men, um, I was pretty sure that this wasn't the way that all things should go on a film set. One of the things that it did do is, in a way, it prepared me for everything else in my career. I said, well, you know, after this, I can handle whatever. I sort of look back on it and think these are responsibilities that somebody my age shouldn't have been given. You know, I, I wound up, um, you know, spending a certain amount of time with Andrea and Margaret when things got difficult on the set. And I don't know that 19-year-olds are necessarily all that well-equipped to deal with some of those kinds of emotional crises that happen in those circumstances. But I don't 
So I said, I look back on it now, and it was trial by fire. And I certainly learned a lot about um, how to manage stress, how to handle a, a difficult shoot, how to keep trying to keep the work moving forward. And so for that, I'm certainly grateful. There's a lot of familiar faces in this film, especially being a fan of like the works of David Cronenberg. I see a lot of, of very familiar faces. Were they all Montreal uh, actors, or was this uh, uh, like more of a generalized Canadian production? I mean, because th- these are very, very talented people you're dealing with. Pretty well, the whole rest of the cast lived in Montreal. Um, I- I'm just trying to think about Augie Schellenberg, whether or not... Because uh, Augie was in the was in the film, if I recall correctly. I don't know if he was living in Montreal at the time. Robin Spry, who of course is a was a very well known director in Canada and producer, um, also who passed away a number of years ago. Robin was in it. Uh, Frank Moore, who had been in one of Cronenberg's films, um, gone on to have an excellent career in film and on the stage number of these people were, as I said, you know, well-known working actors in Montreal, happy for the gig. If memory serves, they shot this in, what, 77, and it doesn't really come out until 81, and then what, not even to Canada until 83, if memory serves? Something like that. When we finished shooting, Alexis went off and spent a great deal of time in the editing room, probably close to two years. And at some point in that period of time, he shot some additional footage. Um, because I remember when I saw it, it premiered at the Montreal Film Festival. I guess that was in 81. And I remember at the time thinking, geez, like, where did that footage come from? Um, and he had gone in the interim and he shot some additional footage. You know, he had some very creative ideas about how um, how to use sound. And I don't know that people necessarily understood what it was that he was trying to do, and I don't know whether or not Alexis necessarily had the support around him in order to actually realize what it was that he was trying to do in some cases with the film. I, I haven't seen it since I saw it in 1981, although I understand it's on YouTube, and so I will probably settle down and watch it over the weekend. I didn't have time to watch it again before we had this conversation. But I'm certainly interested in going back and seeing it now all these many years later to see how it stands up and what it looks like. What was that like for you seeing something that was, let's say it was a fairly harrowing experience shooting this movie in 77 and then catching back with it in 81? What was that like looking back over just those four years? Like all experiences that are challenging, there needs to be some sense of closure. And there was no sort of sense of closure on that film until we, you know, I finally saw it. I don't even remember how many other people were there in the audience that evening. But it was so long afterwards, and I'd worked on a whole ton of films in the interim, that there was a bit of distance from it at the time. And I don't know... I don't know. I remember not being particularly emotionally invested in it anymore because of because of the time. I think I might feel different looking at it now, actually, even with all these many more years that have passed since when I first saw it. The idea of Margaret Trudeau being in the film. Now, that's 
something that I'm is it's literally foreign to me. I'm not sure exactly how were the press like laying in wait for her when the film finally comes out, or is it this is a novelty that the former prime minister's wife was in this movie, or how is she handled in this film when it finally makes it its its appearance? There was more kerfuffle at the time when it was being shot. There were, as I said, there was what we now understand as paparazzi outside the hotel on a fairly regular basis. And at the time, Margaret and I, our hair was about the same length, we're about the same height. And I remember one uh, one evening um, wrapping my hair in a, in a kerchief and putting on big dark sunglasses and somebody sort of ushering me out that way in a limo to be a decoy so that poor Margaret could get out of the hotel for the first time and, and go out and do something. So they were certainly, I remember one afternoon, I caught some of them creeping up the stairwell of the hotel and they had to be had to call security and get them banished from the hotel. Because there was, you know, as you can imagine, the Canadian press, a huge amount of uh, publicity about this. She had already been uh, seen out with the Rolling Stones. I think at that point, uh, there was a certain amount of uh, scandal around it. And the press, the press was not very kind to Margaret either. And they said some things that were both extremely unfair and, and quite untrue about her. You know, she married Pierre Trudeau when she was very, very young. And by the time she separated from him, she was under 30, and she had three children under the age of six. Um, and being the first lady of any country is no small job, as anybody can imagine. And here she was, this young, beautiful, vivacious woman when she met him. And I think the very things that brought them together were probably the things that eventually pushed them apart from each other. And the press and... and she took a lot of heat from the Canadian public. People thought she was flighty and this, you know, hippy-dippy flower child. And they would discount the things that she would say and sort of poo-poo her. And Margaret is one of the kindest, most open people I've ever met. There was no guile about her at all. Um, she spoke from the heart. She... I don't want to use the word innocent because innocence suggests a naivete, but she trusted people. She was open with people. That's what, she, that's how she felt. And so she, that's how she treated people. That's how she thought people should treat her. And that, as I said, was twisted sometimes in the press and held against her. Of course, years later, she, you know, discovered that she had some mental health issues, which I think she's tackled very publicly and very bravely in the interim. But I was always, in all the years since then, whenever anyone has said anything untoward or unpleasant about her, I vehemently defended Margaret. As I said, I thought that she was treated very shabbily at the time by both the Canadian and the international press for her decisions. So it sounds like you kind of got thrown into the casting process for this film just by default, if anything, or was that something that you're like, no, 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 I'll handle the casting? It was kind of, it was kind of default, a little bit of both, a certain amount of default, a certain amount of, well, you know, I, I know people. I could, you know, set up the auditions and I can bring these people in for the, for some of the roles. Um, in the end, 
I think I wound up making some of the decisions about some of the roles myself because Alexis was otherwise occupied. Um, and that was a little nerve-wracking at the time. But, yeah, there was no question that, you know, what I thought was going to be an interesting short adventure working as his assistant, I had not anticipated staying with the film throughout the entire process and taking on any, any of the responsibilities that I had at the time. And then you end up working as a uh, casting director for, what, another decade at least after that? Yeah, just about. I um, I worked on quite a number of films in a number of capacities, worked as an AD, worked as a unit manager, certainly worked in casting. I worked a little differently from a number of casting directors. I would actually stay on the film and be on set in many cases. I took complete responsibility for the for the cast, negotiating their contracts, taking care of them. Um, and eventually my sort of career path shifted a little bit. I became, uh, because I was an actor member, I became involved politically with the union. And I wound up sitting on a negotiating committee and discovered that I really liked it and I was actually quite good at it. And after a brief uh, stint down in Los Angeles working for a Canadian producer down there, I came back to Montreal and wound up working for ACTRA. Uh, for a number of years, um, my career path took me through um, the job as the Assistant Director General of the English Program at the National Film Board of Canada. I then uh, came to Toronto in, uh, well, um, after that, I worked for the uh, Film Technicians Union in Montreal as their liaison with the Hollywood Studios. So the Hollywood Studios would come into Montreal and they'd want to shoot a $150 million movie and I'd sort of make the deal with them on behalf of the technicians and actors to some degree as well. And then I was offered a job in Toronto working for the Directors Guild of Canada, specifically looking after the film and television directors. And from there, I was headhunted away to be the executive director at Canadian Actors' Equity Association, which is the union that represents people working in live performance in theater, dance, and opera, coast to coast to coast. And I've been the executive director at Equity now for 10 years. It's not where I thought my career was going to end up, but in the end, I think it's probably the ideal place for me. As I said, um, the whole... I guess I started negotiating at a very young age, as it turns out, and discovered that it was something that I certainly enjoyed doing. So I, I do quite a lot of it now in my current job. As far as your days working in casting, I'm curious what film was your favorite to work on? Uh, there are two projects that I was involved in that I'm, I'm particularly proud of for different reasons. One was a mini-series called Little Gloria Happy at Last, which was directed by a gentleman named Warris Hussein, British director, about the early life of Gloria Vanderbilt. And the other one was Quest for Fire, which was <laughs> another one of those films where the people who got through on the other end said, phew, survived that one. Uh, but that was primarily because of the, I worked on the Canadian portion, I did the Canadian casting and stayed with um, the show while it was being shot up on the Bruce Peninsula. <clears throat> but the just the tremendously difficult physical conditions under which that film was shot, the 
really astonishing number of hours that uh, we put in every day in very, very uncomfortable, challenging physical conditions. Um, and I, I, uh, I'll say this for the record. Um, there were moments when we were making that film where I completely lost track of where we were and what we were doing. Of course, there's no dialogue. So it becomes really difficult in some respects to say, well, where are we <laughs> in the film? What are we shooting today? And how does this fit into anything else? Because there's no dialogue. And of course, when I finally saw the film, and it's a completely coherent, properly structured film from A to Z, that was one of those great epiphanies when I realized how much I didn't know about the filmmaking process because I had gotten lost and Jean-Jacques Hano, the director, wasn't lost for a moment. And so that was, as I said, it was a, you know, a band of brothers kind of experience, those of us who worked on that film together. But it was also for me, as I said, really, really eye-opening at a certain point in my career about how much I did not know about how to get a, how to get a decent film made. Thank you so much for your time tonight. I really appreciate this. You're welcome, Mike. I uh, I appreciate the fact that you've reached out. Uh, I'm glad that you spoke to Andrea. As I said, she's a she's a lovely, lovely lady, and I look forward to being able to listen to the podcast when it's available. talking about kings and desperate men speaking of the restoration or the availability of this this isn't even something that shows up on those cheapy dvds that you'd find at like dollar general or something it just seems to be kind of dead in the water just the vhs versions that are out there now it's not even like in the you know the quasi gray market public domain yeah, it would be a great alpha title. I would, I would love to see their cover design for it. Oh, yeah. I just, I just bought a whole bunch of uh, alpha videos just because I love their covers, but their transfers are freaking awful. That's but, true. But, but their covers are awesome. I just have this pile of clippings uh, for random movies that I got from Academy of Motion Picture, Arts and Sciences Library in, L- in L.A., and uh, there's a there's a title underneath uh, my phone right now that I I then pulled a file on called Dear Mr. Wonderful, which is a film with Joe Pesci made by a German a, n- a new German cinema director. It was Pesci's first starring role, and that's on that's on a kind of cheapy company, uh, and and that's how I I first saw. It. But it's this the closing paragraph I find to be really uh, yeah yeah unbelievable. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it's, it's Dear Mr. It's, Wonderful has been aptly paired with Fassbender's Mother Kunster's Goes to Heaven. I mean, yeah, yeah. seriously? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a, one of my all-time favorite movies, and I happen to find it on a cheap, on all these cheap companies. But I mean, if you look and you go to the Alice Kino website, which is the German distributor, they have a they have a much better uh, res uh, full HD version that that you can watch. So you know. It's kind of envy, you know. Even though I'm happy that that version of Dear Mr. Wonderful is out there, Kings is just totally MIA. And uh, I think there are more people 
out there who would at least be interested in seeing it due to the prisoner you know, connection. Uh, I think it's, I you know, as far as these uh, boutique disc releases go, I, I think it would really uh, do well with uh, with a kind of a micro cult who loves, uh, you know, loves a prisoner and likes McGowan. Yeah, uh, it seems strange to me because I, I remember at Fandor, this one filmmaker approached me and they wanted to do a licensing deal because they were tired of their film being bootlegged. And I was like, <laughs> seriously? I mean, that's a problem you wish you had. And then I was in Mexico City like a few days later yeah. and found like a bootleg DVD of their film <laughs> in, a, in a market. And I'm like, wow. oh, I guess they're right. Yeah. But have I ever seen a bootleg version of Kings and Desperate Men? No, I have no. not. Yeah. So it's just that obscure. Well before it, it turned up uh, on YouTube uh, in that version and uh, uh, well before it was on like the secret uh, torrent sites like Caragarga. I, uh, I I did a, a personal VHS to digital transfer. You know, made a cover for it and everything. And, and oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> it's, in, it's over there somewhere. That's how obsessed with this movie I was for a while. When I first saw it and really wanted to know more about it, there was just literally nothing on the internet about it. I, and I dug deep at that point. It was, there was just like so, and, and like whenever I did find a little kernel or something, I was like, oh, wow, oh wow. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, and then like that that interview on YouTube with Canner or that that right. kind of uh, post, you know, that that Q and A, I guess. That right. Post yeah. Is a, is, a, is another uh, another interesting artifact that if I had found that in two thousand two or yeah. three, I would have plotted. I would have been yeah. beside myself with joy just to hear him it's, talk for an hour about it. You know? It's frustrating because some like half of the time is him talking about living in harmony. And I was like, <laughs> can we just get back to Kings and Desperate Men? Like, why are we talking about the prisoner right here? But I understand with that audience that they were right. probably pretty fixated on. Like, I like your movie, but what about yeah. this other thing that's a right. cultural phenomenon? Can we talk yeah. about that? It's like that. Uh, it's like yeah, uh, Mike, you were in the, the People versus uh, George Lucas. So it's like you know that thing that you made that we liked years ago. We'd like more of that, please. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, and I, to what extent, Daniel, do you, would you say that you can relate to this movie in the sense that? You can see the love and passion that Alexis Kenner has poured into the writing, the producing, the directing of this film, the acting, his performances in it, because you perform in some of your work, the editing of his film, this elaborate sound design, which he clearly had a, a direct hand in. And then the film comes out and it's completely like everyone yeah. just kind of shrugs and goes well that's interesting and it's like no you don't understand this is it's not interesting this is brilliant incredibly frustrating on my end as well because i mean i, I always think and and talking about the kind of the the rougher part of the film i always flash because i edited a film about the sunra orchestra for uh, my friend effie asili years ago and uh, one of the band members of the orchestra said uh, you know there's you know w- when you're playing for the orchestra there's the good the bad and the ugly, and you know, the, and the, the ugly is part of of beauty. Uh, the, the ugly is part of the good. So you know, I I always really much have rougher hewn films where maybe I mean that's that's probably why I love Cassavetes. There's that whole thing, uh, the whole uh, story where he's where the cameraman is doing a perfect pan mm-hmm. and he kind of elbows up a little <laughs> bit and, and he's like, what the hell are you doing? I was like, no, 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 that's, that's kind of what, what we are after here. I have a shelf of, you know, American and, and Canadian independence over there. There's always this kind of rough component to it that, uh, that I admire more than uh, a film with, uh, uh, people are in drone fever nowadays and I get really right. tired of, uh, the overuse oh, of drone shots. Man, me too. And, uh, I, I, I really get, 
very happy when I see a film that is artfully done that that has a kind of a vision and a and an overall scheme, but might be just a little rougher. Well, I mean, uh, has a handheld tracking shot, has, you know, as opposed to you know steady camming shit to death. It's just mm-hmm. you know, I I really have a, a a hankering to see films like Kings, where it's just like you know, yeah, you can you can kind of tell that that's jam sync there. Yeah. But it's kind of cool that there's this kind of hodgepodge because, I've, I mean, oftentimes editing my own work, you feel like it's all being held together sometimes with, like, you know, chewing gum and twine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, particularly after I was editing last night, I, I definitely felt that way. But, uh, um, you know, I like that feeling that, you know, it's being held together just by the by the skin of, your, of, of its teeth. And it works better than, than if you have all the money and all the polish in the world. That's just how I feel about things. But, you know, I'm weird. <laughs> well, it's just definitely more engaging that way. You're asking the viewer to really work with the material. And clearly literature in so many ways is so far ahead of cinema in this regard. And most cinema, not all. But, and its willingness to to take the – in literature, take the reader to places – that they couldn't necessarily arrive at in other means. And for the, in the context of a film, you, you want the film to justify its being. It wants to, you know, it, I don't want to watch something that's super polished that by the end of it is completely forgettable, which is really the majority of what gets made. So things with rough edges, there's perfect. I mean, life is rough. It's not, yeah, it's not right, perfect. Yeah, exactly. Things don't, shouldn't necessarily fit together. It's funny with this with this new film I'm working on, which is basically genre hodgepodge. People are just like, the film is totally confused. It's like life is totally confused. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you know, I, that's what that's kind of you want to see something a little different. Yeah. I should also mention that uh, uh, on, 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 Andre doesn't mention this in, in, in the phone interview with you. And in, in the one back in '09, she talked about how when she first met Canner, uh, he actually fell asleep in his soup at a restaurant. <laughs> uh, and at, at, at the time, she wasn't sure if. Uh, um, if he uh, was just jet lagged and couldn't keep his eyes open or his head up, or, or if he was drinking, and she found out later that he had a drinking problem. So you know, and I guess she had a hell of a time on this movie. This is an early film for her. She had done the front with for Marty, Marty Ritt, as she mentioned, but mm-hmm. uh, um, you know, she had uh, she hadn't really risen as a as an actress yet. She had uh, Airport '79 ahead of her the next year, <laughs> yeah. uh, the hand and the, and the the stuff. And uh, I remember her saying to me, "It's like." Oh, darling, I've been in many cult films. You'll have to narrow it down a little bit. <laughs> well, but I think she's such a compelling presence in yeah. the movie, too. Like, it's really that, that the trio of them, all kind of equally off-kilter, but, you know, and each of them trying to prop up the other in this kind of game of wits. Uh, I like the moments when Canner, who is clearly not the most stable person in the situation, has to bring her down from... yeah. Right. Gowen's taunting of, yeah, of yeah. her that quite easily she could just kill him and be done with yeah. it. I, I'm still kind of confused by her little like fit that she has, yeah. you know. I, I, I've seen, I don't know how many times I, I've, I've seen the movie. I still don't quite know what happens in that moment. He well, grabs the gun. Right. And then she has this kind of like nearly you know, epi- yeah. epileptic seizure meltdown. Yeah. It's like, what the hell? You know, but I find that really. You know, an interesting choice. Well, it's also like nothing about their relationship is ever explained. No backstory is provided as to, yeah. like, at least we know that right. Canner's character is this history professor, history but professor, yeah. well, how does she, yeah. is she the Patty Hearst in this whole setup? Like, is she, like, what is, 
what is her relationship to anything? Or what is the relationship of any of these characters to each other? Yeah. I mean, they're part of this outfit. I mean, they're, they've got this motley crew pulled together to pull off this right. thing where not to ruin it for those folks who haven't seen it. Stop now. Go watch the movie. Yeah. But yeah, when, when they, when, when the, one of the hostages dies, yeah, inadvertently, no. it's, it's like, yeah, oh, was, now what are we, now what are I was we about to, to say that. And like, it's almost like he just nods off and it's like, he's dead. Like, well, it's all yeah, done in the audio too. And then, like, it just, it's stopped. yeah, I know. And then, and then like, like you know, the yeah, first time you're watching, like, it's like, he's dead. He's dead. What? what? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is a narratively pretty risky thing to do, but it certainly escalates the tension. It's like, all right, yeah. now it's it's gone beyond this little incidental. Like, you pulled this thing off in order to hijack this radio program. Now one of the hostages is dead. All right, now it's serious. And yeah. there's no unraveling it. Or when one of the terrorists gets beaten to death, basically. I mean, we assume he's beaten to death. Uh, oh, yeah. It's never, it's never the And like all that yeah. like yelling and whatnot. It's like, oh, it's which also is horrific. Bizarre. Yeah, I know. Yeah, because it's yeah. going out over the airwaves. And yeah, you yeah. just hear this. like, ah. it's like uh, you can come in. I'm walking out. And then yeah. <laughs> done. Or, or these little out of context gambits by the law enforcement. Like, you know, right. they keep on replaying that bit. And uh, it's like, just because he says up. Uh-huh. You know, and they're, they're, and we we get the sense that they're trying to figure something out to outsmart them, but we're not privy to the rest of the conversation. Well, we just get like you know these I little bits and pieces. I particularly love that any moment where the law enforcement is actually successful happens off screen. Yeah, like anytime they do right. something that's smart, <laughs> uh, we only hear about it. Yeah, yeah. We don't actually see it happen. We yeah. see them prepare to do things, right. but we never actually see them achieve yeah. anything. Right. And in fact, the one main thing that they achieve happens after something else has already happened yeah and then they're like everything's okay it's clear everything's like right, right. Hey, you didn't do anything why didn't you you could have stopped this guy right, from being right, beaten yeah, to yeah. death why didn't you right. go in earlier <laughs> or so we assume it's brought out of a certain traditional logic in a way and it's like brought right. into this kind of uh fever dream logic where right. it's just like you know where you don't know which end is up and it's uh that's you know pretty unique in my in my experience of a genre film and and one that has as great of an of an elevator pitch as as this one does, you know, but, just jettisons that in favor of this kind of very uh, abstruse uh, construction. Yeah. In relation to the two films, it's generally compared to, which would be talk radio, Oliver Stone directing yeah. Eric Bogosian, and then uh, Die Hard, of course. Yeah. Honestly, I find this to be immensely more enjoyable and interesting than talk radio, which has not aged well at all. Die Hard is just a totally different. Thing. I mean, it's just, yeah. that's really not worthy of comparison, but hopefully, you know, if anyone, oh, I love Die Hard. I can't right, wait to right, see yeah. Kings and Desperate Men. Go yeah, right yeah. for it. <laughs> if you want to believe that they're the same, go for it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think, I think Kanner uh, might have been slightly overreaching there, but, you know, he's entitled to a little. Well, if it helped get delirium. people yeah, more I guess, attention I guess, to the film, I, yeah, I mean, in I, that context. I guess that might, that might have been his, his end game. But, I, yeah, I yeah. hope, I hope that's what he was intending yeah. for. Maybe he was. Not himself for one way, one reason or another, and thought legitimately that there was. I mean, someone had to take the case. Yeah. So someone must have believed that there was the, you know, the opportunity for the producers of Die Hard to have either read his script or seen the film or what. I don't know what the catalyst was to believe that beyond the setting and the basic premise, that one was a riff on the other. Is it's a bit far fetched. There's no, I guess, I guess in this industry, there's, there's no such thing as, as, as bad people. Well, I guess there is. I, I, I'm sorry. I, I, I stopped myself before I used in turn of turns of events. 
However, I wouldn't mind Alan Rickman being in Kings and Desperate Men in the cameo. That would be fun. In a remake. <laughs> I have comrades in arms around the world languishing in prison. The American State Department enjoys rattling its saber for its own ends. Now it can rattle it for me. The following people are to be released from their captors. In Northern Ireland, the seven members of the new Provo Front. In Canada, the five imprisoned leaders of Liberté de Québec. In Sri Lanka, the nine members of the Asian Dawn. What the fuck? I read about them in Time magazine. I'm not aware that Patrick McGowan was ever really asked much about this particular film. Although I think it's a it's a great performance. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a, it's gutsy as hell. Uh, it's, you know, it's certainly it's, it not likable. No, I mean it takes a lot to put yourself out there like that. Uh, it takes a lot of. Well, I guess trust in your director as well, and mm-hmm. just you know, knowing that you know uh, that you can you can go all the way, and uh, you know, we'll, we'll we'll catch you, and that's that's that that to me is is the best that you can do as a director is assuring your your performers of that, you know, go all the way, and if if, if it doesn't work, we'll do another take, and I'll catch you, and I think that was offered to him here, even no matter how much booze they had available <laughs> to them, I think I think that was there. McGowan was a replacement for another actor originally, which is which mm-hmm. this article mentions here, I guess. Uh, uh, and then the, the the guy who was who was supposed to play Miller, uh, it said, yeah, he had difficulties of a legal nature. The first shot I needed him for was in Canada, and no one is allowed to cross the border if there's a legal question unresolved. Uh, so yes. uh, so Canner wound up uh, at the last minute uh, filling his shoes uh, at three uh, thirty in the morning. He says. Uh, Huh. And uh, yeah, it was it was actually uh, it was a bang on his door at that time in the morning, and it was it was Magoon saying, "You'll do it." Last minute bit, um, bits of trivia, I guess. But uh, I think there are people these days, outside of the connection to Margaret Trudeau, uh, people come to it who have enjoyed the prisoner, uh, love the interplay between Magoon and Canner, and living in harmony. Who, as a novelty, discover the film in that context, and I really. If they do that, they're pleasantly surprised that this is it, it shares some narrative similarities to the subtext of the prisoner while taking it in a very different direction to direct different direction in the what we were talking about earlier it does uh, help to have some sense of Canadian history to, to kind of set the, the stage for for what happens in the film. Yeah, even though by the time it was released, a lot of that was moot. Well, guys, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Daniel and Jonathan. Daniel, what's been keeping you busy lately? I'm editing my epic, I guess you might say, which is a two-and-a-half to three-hour movie. It's going to turn out to be, I'll probably do a, a shorter festival cut. In my preferred version, it'll be a pretty long, long-ass long movie. Uh, adaptation of an early American novel, which I think the last time I was on your show, I was shooting. And that also has a has a talk radio element. The main character is a is a is a talk. Is a, oh, that's right. Is a talk yeah. radio host. Yeah, yeah, ah. yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, I yeah. I, I was I invited Jonathan to be a, a guest actually on that on, on the show, which didn't happen. But you know, as always, next time, sure. <laughs> next time I might do a movie about a talk radio host. If you, if you need uh, voiceover work, I can do that. Oh, cool. Yeah, if yeah. You like cool. some nasally sounding. No, we we, we 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 actually do need uh, phone and guests. So okay, I'll well you know, then yeah. I will. Uh, yeah, in a nod um, to Kings and Desperate Men, I yeah, will participate. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. You, I will ramble you, on. You, you, you can even say uh, you, you you can even call yourself the the uh, the Englishman's Englishman and the man <laughs> the man the man you love to hate. Um, and uh, so I'm editing that, and that's been s- kind of slow and, and arduous, but but very rewarding. 
shooting a new feature, which is a very, which will be no more than an hour and a half, uh, kind of a character study of a of an amateur a shooter of a of a of eight millimeter film uh, of a super eight and kind of a hobbyist uh, who happens to be a, a ambulance chasing lawyer. So I'm doing that mm-hmm. on Mondays, and I'm editing my book on uh, on John McLean Silver and. Uh, you know, helping various other people out in here in, in the Bay Area with their film projects and whatnot, and working at, uh, at at this film lab and watching movies. That's it. And Jonathan, what's going on in your world? Me and my compatriots at Arbelos uh, have a film as the moment of this recording is premiering at Il Cinema Ritrovato in Bologna tomorrow. This movie called The Last Movie. Our first movie released is The Last Movie. <laughs> it also opens at the Metrograph. Uh, in August, uh, and then elsewhere thereafter. And then I also run distribution for California Film Institute so through CFI Releasing. We have a film that's opening in October at Film Forum, and then elsewhere thereafter called uh, Life and Nothing More. But uh, you can't see me because this is a podcast, but I, uh, I'm in the midst of a fundraiser for a festival that I put on in uh, Petaluma, California, former egg basket of the world. Uh, so I shaved my head, and currently I'm wearing a baseball cap from the opening at the Telluride Film Festival of the Pierre. So this is my Pierre Rissian hat. I figured that would make me smarter today. Uh, I don't think I challenged or channeled uh, Rissian quite appropriately. but And then, yeah, and then uh, I've been recording an album in the background as well. So I'm kind of doing... Uh, many things at once. And as Daniel and I were talking about on my way here, my mother's coming to visit this weekend, so that will be interesting. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-boot.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you can also find links over to iTunes where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.